I'm going to use a current image coming out of Washington, D.C. right now to give you an idea of what many have called the influence of China on our nation. Information warfare, social media, psychological warfare. While we get woke, China wakes up to the reality of a hundred years of a mission to continue their expansion around the world, politically, economically, and geographically. In Washington, D.C., Dr. Anthony Fauci is about to testify on the Hill in front of Congress, standing there next to the HHS secretary. In that picture, no one is wearing a mask. One person in this particular shot out of over 10 people wearing a mask. But yet there's a great deal of push from China, according to many sources, to drive their influence via just this issue around the, now around the pandemic. So is this part of China's growth? And do our culture wars, while we get woke, make us more vulnerable to Chinese influence? Dr. Wai Finzong, Senior Research Fellow at Mercatus at George Mason University, uh, joins me now. Dr. Zong, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, David. You know, we've got to dig into this in a way that I don't see many in the media. I look at the perspective of China. What benefits them? I use the example of the mass, but it is a fact that their Ministry of Foreign Affairs has played up on the on the pandemic. If you track their social media, if you track their influence with the WHO, with other nations, and as I do, I speak to some in Washington D.C who are being, or at least attempted to be influenced by the Chinese, who, for their part, employ the largest amount of lobbyists in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, on just about every issue. They approach just about every elected official. China's influence is growing. Absolutely. And I think the uh, what you pointed out is definitely true, that for years, it has been a standard practice, I would say, for Chinese propaganda to criticize the United States and other liberal democracies. But that's really just serving the internal or domestic audience because the regime's got to justify to the people that they are more righteous than democracies because the Chinese government is not democratically elected. But the, what I would say is a worse or bigger problem is that after 20 years of what I would call a romantic engagement with the Chinese, uh, with, the, the, with China, between the China and the United States, I think what has uh, taken uh, us by surprise is that not only uh, did China not turn into any more democratic society, but because the uh, Chinese and American economies are so intertwined, there are now many venues of influence. And so I, I, what I'm seeing is a reverse contagion uh, of the authoritarian values in many uh, aspects of our lives. And you mentioned the, the woke uh, movement or the cancel culture, things like that. I think that's precisely what will prevent us from effectively countering China. So that's what makes, the, makes me the most concerned about. 
Well, that drives the culture, and I agree with you because you create a generation, right, a growing generation of people who will go along with this, and that's to China's advantage. Why do you think, you mentioned this romance-type relationship, I think pretty interesting way to put it, uh, but why do you think, beyond just the economic, we did not... Uh, own up honestly to the Chinese Communist Party and the relationship with them? Was it influence on both sides of this issue with the U.S. and China, uh, or was there some other factor that was a major factor? I think what uh, what a major factor behind this uh, drastic change in the last 20 years was that uh, the West, uh, the U.S. and its allies, they didn't see that some of the bad practices in China, I'm talking about bad policies like stealing uh, intellectual property or you know, forced labor even, right? So now it's coming up on the news much more than before. Those bad practices, they exist in China for a long time, even before China joined the WTO. But what happens after joined, uh, China was integrated into the global economy, was that those bad practices are internalized or institutionalized, and even more so of part of China's uh, state-directed or what I would call state capitalist system. And so that's what's surprising to the West, because the hope was actually that as China becomes more open economically, it will also become more open politically, and those bad practices would go away. And so I think now we are just really coming around to the realization that they are not only staying, they will become even stronger. And it's really hard for the U.S. now to counter all these bad practices. You know, what you described, Dr. Zong, is willful ignorance, as I put it, on our part. Our part being not just the United States, but the world. Mao's vision was clear. Over a year ago, or somewhere within the last year, I don't know the exact date offhand, Xi Jinping was voted president for life, an important moment largely ignored by the West. The 100-year plan had other elements to it, like the, you know, we talk about the CCP, but the TTP, the Thousand Talents Plan, was a clear effort by China that's ongoing to not only recruit people around the world, you talk about theft of intellectual property, but to actually steal those creating, in a sense, the intellectual property, research, development, uh, salaries were being offered, research funding, lab space, other incentives. They were taking the human capital because they didn't innovate as much as we are capable of. So our political, in, in my opinion, our political leadership, our business leadership failed or they were simply willfully ignorant and greedy. I, I agree with you absolutely, 100%, because China's vision has always been clear. They, they have the vision, uh, what it's called the rejuvenization of the nation or the Chinese dream, basically uh, the, the goal is to make uh, turn China into a leader on the global stage and perhaps even overtaking the United States position in the international community. But I think American leaders in Washington, their vision, I don't see it being as clear as the Chinese vision, because I don't think the nation still uh, has, has no idea how to deal with a major trading partner that's not democratic. That, that's not something that has happened to the U.S. before. 
And I think policymakers still haven't wrapped their heads around how to approach that, because if you continue to engage with them romantically, it's going to bring more problems that we have seen, including the Southern Talent Program you mentioned. But it's impractical to to entertain the idea of divorce, right? Because we sort of talked about it during the Trump administration. The tariffs war is sort of leaning toward that direction, but the economic damage is too too much to to take. And so I think it's hard to find the just the right balance between the two extremes. And until we find a solution, we'll see more more and more values of this kind of inference, like the Thousand Talent Program, and. The fact that we are only talking about this in recent years, it's very concerning, too, because those efforts, including, for example, the Confucius Institute, they have been around for two decades. We are only recently talking about this, but the efforts uh, lasted much longer. And really, it shows how behind our knowledge is relative to the actual influence by the Chinese government. By the way, just on a personal note, I find it insulting to reality and true history of Confucius when they call it the Confucius Institute. After all, he did believe and practice and preach education and expansion under what are closer to free market, free thinking principles than to control. Uh, So just on a personal note, I actually have paid attention to the history of of Confucius and the family for that matter. China's expanded, and I don't want to lose, lose sight of the culture war, but you mentioned something, the intertwined nature of our economies. Will is a part of this. Is there will in the United States to realize the interconnected nature that China can be weakened because of this, I don't know, unfortunate marriage economically, because they rely on us heavily. Therefore, we also have or can exercise an advantage. What do you think? I think it's... uh, uh, I understand the sentiment behind your question. I think it's a very hard challenge not only because the two economies are so intertwined, but also because a lot of the inference operations we are talking about by, uh, undertaken by the Chinese government, they often operate uh, within the legal boundaries in the United States. For example, academic exchange, right? So that's oftentimes a legitimate activity. But when it gets to a thousand talent program that's uh, aimed for stealing intellectual property or uh, state secrets in the United States, then it becomes illegal. But a lot of activities, the line between legal and illegal activities are sort of blurred. And the, the cultural environment we are living in now, we are fighting so fiercely about who's more righteous. And I think that prevents us from engaging in a vibrant discussion uh, about China because we do need information. The information about Chinese influence in our society is dispersed and we don't have the forum for the larger civil society to uh, gather those information or freely express opinions about what's not right and what's right and how to continue this engagement in a more realistic way with such a big uh, economy like China. So I think that the cultural element here is concerning because we, when we really get to the China problem, uh, we don't have the, the cultural tolerance, I would say, uh, for us to move forward on that effectively. 
You know, just to use an example and to bring us back to culture, culture and lies, culture and information. I mentioned information warfare earlier, Dr. Zong. John Ross, as an example, John Ross, uh, the name obviously not very Asian, senior fellow at the Chanyang Institute for Financial, uh, in- Financial Studies, tweeted this. People in China laugh when the West claims to stand for human rights. In China, less than 5,000 deaths from COVID-19. In U.S., more than 600,000 deaths. In the U.K., 129,000. The Western countries are slaughtering hundreds of thousands of their citizens while talking human rights. Hua Shunying, a China government official, a foreign ministry spokesperson, tweets repeatedly it falls under the principle of they lie we know they lie they know we know they lie but they continue to lie anyway but it's effective in culture and in information how do we address that that's a a long practice long lasting practice on the chinese part Uh, and it's it has been very effective not only to chinese citizens but also sometimes to foreign audience as well and I don't see a clear solution because a lot of times these kind of lies, they spread in social media and a lot of social media accounts held by Chinese officials, they are still actively tweeting a lot of lies every day while some other accounts are banned. And I, I don't think the government has the effective uh, tools to uh, make sure that those accounts do not continue to live on the social media. Because we do live in a world of, uh, we live in a society of free speech, right? So uh, anyone who has an account on social media, they should be able to, uh, to be free to tweet about whatever they want, uh, unless, uh, you know, they uh, obviously uh, break any laws. And I don't think those uh, propaganda accounts, uh, they are actively breaking any laws in the United States. And for that reason, I do see that continue to go on for a long time. And that, that brings us to a, a much bigger problem. I think big tech platforms are a challenge that will be facing us for a long time because they have quasi-government power, but we don't have the effective tool to make sure that those forums remain vibrant and lies-free. You know, one of the reasons I bring up the John Ross tweet is this. You bring up big tech. So uh, you were prescient in that sense, Dr. Zhang. Big tech operates in China at the will of the government or will not operate at the will of the government. Big tech in the United States shut down information as they see fit. We now have the White House spokesperson, Jen Psaki, talking about working with Facebook to determine what is misinformation and what is not. I support free speech, freedom of speech, even that which is wrong or otherwise. The fact is, it's not the environment where we are today. Does big tech, while at the same time banning talk of, say, the leak from the Wuhan lab when it comes to COVID-19, not respond when John Ross tweets about the number of COVID deaths in China and we are to believe that there were only 5,000 deaths? It's clearly false that we know, but big tech plays a role in this. And is there a way to, you know, to lead them towards any responsibility? Honestly, I, I, I will have to say I don't have a good solution to that problem. Although you mentioned that the, the Biden administration now is working with big tech to try to impose censorship on a dozen or so accounts that are responsible for spreading uh, misinformation. 
I see that as a violation of free speech because government is not supposed to actively engage in censorship, right? And that, that I mean, this is something so basic that even people, uh, you know, who do not uh, grow up in the environment with free speech like I am uh, would be able to understand. So I think that's, that's very concerning. But without that, though, uh, would uh, uh, big techs, uh, do, do we have any good way to make sure that we, the fora we have with the social media, various social media platforms remain as free as it could be? I'm, I'm not, I'm, I have serious doubt about that because they do have the, uh, the editorial rights uh, to edit, to allow certain content to be on and uh, certain other content to not be on their platform. This, that within their freedom of speech uh, or within their free speech right as well. So I think that's a dilemma, and it's the same dilemma that I mentioned before, that how does a free society engage with another one that's not free and in so right. many uh, intertwined ways? I think that's a challenge that will be facing uh, the United States for the next century. And it, uh, but what I, I see as the first step we should get on is to at least have a forum to talk about that and talk about these issues, and that would come before uh, us being able to find out uh, a solution. Well, look, like you, I favor free speech. I believe the solution is not to shut it down, but to have more speech. Uh, so we are fully aligned on that. Uh, and yes, you're right. It, 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 there's not an answer to that question that is clear or singular uh, in a sense. Culture, which you write about, and why we're here having this discussion has now flowed into other areas in our country, not just with the youth and universities, uh, maybe even in the jobs market, but into our military. So while we go woke and the military, including the Navy, and this should concern us all because the Navy has to operate in the Asian waters, the South China Sea, broadly the Indo-Pacific region, uh, and yet we have a woke military teaching very things that are being pushed out of the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs and by the Marxist elements in this country, like Black Lives Matters and others, their open admission of who they are. Uh, how concerned should we be about this? And can we do something about it? I think it's very concerning. And the problem I see here is that, very sadly, oftentimes when we deal with oppression in our society, the response we, we often come up with is another form of uh, oppression in response to the, the earlier form of oppression. Um, for, for example, you mentioned uh, now it, it's all over the media now, the critical race theory, which in my opinion is very wrong. But uh, the uh, response to that that I see, in, at least in some states, would be uh, were some legislation to try to ban the teaching of critical race theory which I think was, was also very wrong, too, because that's exactly, like I said, uh, op using oppression as a response to an earlier form of oppression. And so I think that that's the core of the problem I see in our culture or the battle over the cultural righteousness, because I, I think it's, there's nothing wrong to fight for the values that we hold dear, but it's the way we fight for those values. With the environments like this, when, when later on we get to the China issue, it would actually uh, disincentivize people from speaking up. And speak, being, able to speaking, uh, being able to speak up freely is exactly what's needed when we need to collect information about various sorts of Chinese influence in the country and come up with uh, effective policy responses to them. 
So without this kind of vibrant, tolerant uh, political culture in the country, I don't see uh, us being able uh, to to counter the Chinese influence that will be with us for a long time. Yeah, and we will be in this battle, this cultural battle, for a very long time. Uh, the imposition is what concerns me. When those who want to impose critical race theory attempt at the same time to shut down any counter to it, they don't want a debate. They don't want a view of two items or more items for discussion. They want to simply impose and indoctrinate. And that's why many around the country are standing up and saying this will not happen. Indoctrination versus vibrant debate is where we are in much of this. Uh, Dr. Zong, your, your work is incredible. I, I love reading what you do, your perspectives. I do appreciate your input on the show. Thank you very much for having me, David. Thank you, sir. Uh, Dr. Wifen Zhang, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. The woke Navy, the woke military, uh, reports coming out, uh, officers saying we're not prepared. While China goes strong, we go woke. Think about that. Your call's next, 866-95-PATRIOT on uh, social media where you're not suppressed on mine, at least. David Webb Show.